Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the Supreme Court wraps up its session with some blockbuster decisions, reinforcing its conservative power and dealing potentially serious blows to some younger voters when it comes to education. We won't go back! We won't go back! Some seismic, yet not surprising, decisions from a Supreme Court that's moved to the right in recent years, striking down affirmative action programs in the college admissions process, siding with religious freedom over an anti-discrimination law involving gay rights, and overturning President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. This is not a normal We'll talk with former Vice President and 2024 GOP contender Mike Pence about the conservative take on the court's decisions. Plus, he's just back from Ukraine. University of California President Dr. Michael Drake will tell us how the UC system ensures a diverse student body following the state's own ban on affirmative action decades ago. And there were some Supreme Court wins for the left. We'll talk about those key voting rights decisions with Obama administration attorney general Eric Holder. Plus, turmoil on the travel front. It's been a miserable week for millions leading up to the 4th of July weekend. Will the trip home be any easier? I feel gross. I feel like I want to cry, but I have nothing left. Once your initial flight gets canceled and you have a connected flight, you can forget it. We'll talk with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about the criticism of the FAA and what's in the works when it comes to dealing with the impact of climate change on airline travel. Finally, can you tell the difference between an artificial intelligence generated image and a real one? We'll help you learn what to look for to tell the real deal from the AI fakes. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. and welcome to Face the Nation. On this 4th of July weekend, the flight cancellations and delays that have plagued travelers all the last week have eased, but there are new threats of bad weather that will likely impact return flights. And it's not just the severe weather, which has been and will continue to be exacerbated by climate change. It's problems with staffing shortages, including air traffic controllers, airline and TSA personnel. There have been almost 7,500 cancellations, and more than 50,000 delayed flights in the last week. We begin today with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who joins us from Traverse City, Michigan. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Back in January, you also had a massive grounding of flights. Why does it seem so chaotic? Well, uh, if you look at the overall picture, we've seen a lot of improvements, but uh, we had a hard few days with severe weather at the beginning of the week, and that definitely put enormous pressure on the system. Now, the good news is on Friday, we saw, according to TSA, a record number of airline passengers, probably the most ever in America. And we saw those cancellation rates stay low. Right now, we're below 
2%. But uh, they really shot up at the first part of the week, largely because of severe weather hitting some of our key hubs. Uh, I yeah. think most passengers understand that no one can control the weather, but anything that's under the control of the airlines and anything that we can do on the FAA side, we need to continue pushing to make sure that there's the smoothest possible experience for air passengers everywhere. Well, and to that point, private industry seems to be pointing back to your office. JetBlue's uh, president said she was blaming the FAA. United CEO was very clear saying the FAA failed us. Um, the DOT's inspector general, general said last month the FAA has no real plan in place to fix the problem of inadequate air traffic control staffing in Miami, New York, key hubs. So how are you addressing that particular issue? Well, first of all, let me be very clear that even according to the industry's own data, air traffic control staffing issues account for less than 10% of the delay minutes in the system. But I would rather that number be zero. So even though this isn't the number one cause or even the number two cause of flight disruptions, it is something that is very important to tackle, and we're doing exactly that. We're hiring 1,500 new air traffic controllers this year. Our plan is to hire another 1,800 traffic controllers next year. We're also working on staffing models that can uh, better address the uh, needs on the ground and cooperating where possible and where appropriate with airlines on uh, things that can make better use of the same national airspace. Remember, we have the most complex uh, national airspace in the world, but there are things we can do to manage it more efficiently. Uh, FAA is using new technology, for example, to open up routes that are more direct using GPS, which means less flight time and ultimately can contribute to less congestion. In the Florida airspace, we actually have enough commercial space launches taking place now that that can be a factor as that airspace gets closed down, especially on those busy travel days. So we've been engaging the space industry to try to keep those launch windows clear of when there is the most traffic. And when we have severe weather situations like we had a few days ago, uh, have set up a very tight operational cadence working tightly and closely with airline operational managers to route aircraft in a way that uh, uh, always mm -hmm. puts safety first, but also uh, makes the most of the opportunities we have. So whether we're talking about day-to-day -day ops and tactics, or whether we're talking about the bigger picture of staffing air traffic control yeah. for the future, uh, we're moving very aggressively on that. And now's the time for these conversations because the FAA reauthorization bill, which will cover the next five years, is moving through the Senate as we speak. And we're still waiting on a new permanent head of the FAA. I, I want to ask you about um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. You were very uh, prominent in promoting the impact on uh, the country for the better. But there's new data out there showing that while taxpayers are pouring in billions of dollars to upgrade infrastructure, um, there is some reporting from First Street Foundation that recently came out showing the government is substantially underestimating the risk of severe rain in some of the city's largest, uh, some of the largest cities in the country. So do you fear that some of these projects are being built on flawed data and flawed numbers? You know, part of what we've been working to do is make our infrastructure more resilient for the future. Uh, you know, uh, the, the hard reality doesn't care about uh, political debates. And if you have what used to be a 500-year flood happening every, every other year, and you got a road that gets washed out, and you put it back, and, you, and it gets washed out again, that doesn't make any sense. I know you were outspoken on Friday with a Supreme Court ruling um, in favor of a Colorado website designer you called it discrimination. Justice Gorsuch uh, said this was a First Amendment is issue where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. What do you make of the argument that Colorado was labeling free speech as discrimination in order to censor it? I think what's really revealing is that there's no evidence that this web designer was ever even approached by a same-sex couple looking for services to support their wedding. So you're seeing more and more of these cases and these circumstances that uh, are designed to get people spun up mm -hmm. and designed to chip away at rights. And I think the bigger picture here, when you look at the uh, Supreme Court taking away a woman's right to choose, uh, you look at Friday's decision diminishing the equality of, uh, of same-sex couples, uh, you look at a number the decisions that have been made, they pose a question that is even deeper than these big cases. And the question is this, did we just live to see the high watermark of freedoms and rights in this country before they were gradually taken away? Because up until now, not 
uniformly, but overall, each generation was able to say that it enjoyed mm -hmm. greater inclusion, greater equality, uh, and more rights and freedoms than the generation before. And those decisions have added up and affected so many people, uh, including me, of course, as I'm yeah. uh, uh, getting ready to uh, go back to uh, m my husband and, and our twins uh, for the rest of this morning, uh, thinking about the fact that the existence of our family uh, is, is only uh, a reality because of a one-vote margin on the Supreme Court uh, a few years ago. These are the kinds of things that are at stake. And we have a mm -hmm. Supreme Court uh, that is very much out of step with how most Americans view these issues. But you know that conservatives are just framing this in a fundamentally different manner. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz described the Colorado law that would compel services be provided despite personal beliefs and, and put it this way. Should a Muslim artist be compelled by the government to draw the image of Muhammad? Should Jewish artists be forced to create art that is anti-Semitic? Do you see merit in those comparisons that have, have to do specifically with free speech and freedom of religion? Yeah, that's really not a comparison that uh, is relevant to this case. But more importantly, I think it's really telling that you have to think of these far-fetched hypotheticals in order to justify decisions that are actually going to have much worse impacts in the real world. And I think this, again, goes back to the broader agenda uh, of the culture wars that are being fired up. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time this morning. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. One Republican presidential candidate who's getting in some foreign travel over the weekend is former Vice President Mike Pence. We spoke with him yesterday from a stop on his way back from Ukraine. We started with the Colorado website designer's Supreme Court victory. What do you say to Americans who believe that this opens the door to discrimination? From the moment uh, the Supreme Court uh, recognized uh, a same-sex marriage, uh, the court had made a commitment that they would still respect uh, the freedom of religion and the freedom of conscience of every American. And, uh, and in Lori Smith's case, she made it very clear uh, that uh, she, would, uh, she would take all customers in her website design. She just simply said that she could not create a website that would celebrate uh, something that violated her religious beliefs. And as you know, I'm a I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I, I believe the marriage is between one man and one woman. And I believe every American is entitled to live, to work, to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. I understand you see this as religious freedom, but um, in other words, are you saying that you would not refuse services to people on the basis of their sexual orientation? No, I, I, look, I, I think uh, th this is not about the law of public accommodation. And uh, this is bo both of these cases came from Colorado where the heavy hand of government came in and said, look, if you have a public accommodation, whether whether you're a cake baker or a web maker, that uh, that you're required to uh, to take all customers. That's what a public accommodation is, Margaret. But what the Supreme Court said here, and as they did in the Jack Smith case by a seven to two majority, is that you can't compel the American people to create products that are that violate their conscience or their religious beliefs. But to the public, for those who do uh, hear some concern here, um, as president, how do you assure them that you will provide equal treatment to all? Well, I, look, I, I, I believe in the freedom of religion and the freedom of conscience of every, every American. In this case, I think the Supreme Court drew a clear line and said yes to religious liberty. I want to ask you about the ruling on affirmative action. Um, fundamentally, do you believe that there are racial inequities in the education system in the United States? 
I'm so grateful that the Supreme Court of the United States here um, recognized what, frankly, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said back in 2003 was that affirmative action was a temporary solution. It was, in, it was designed to make sure that we opened doors that hadn't been opened before. But she herself said that she expected it to go away within 25 years. It went away more quickly than that. I think that's a tribute to our nation. Uh, it's a great, great credit uh, to the extraordinary accomplishments uh, that minority students have had on our campuses, and, and I really do believe uh, that, uh, that, uh, that we can move forward as a country and, and, and embrace the notion that we're all gonna be judged not on the color of our skin, but on the content of our character, and in this case, on our GPA. Am I understanding you saying there in that answer that you do not believe there is racial inequity in the education system in America? I, I just, I, I really don't believe there is. I believe there was, I mean, it's, it's, there may have been a time when affirmative action uh, was necessary simply to open the doors uh, of all of our schools and universities. But I think that time has passed and we'll continue to move forward as a, as a colorblind society, which is really uh, the aspiration, I believe, the, of every American. The court also ruled that President Biden lacks the legal authority to forgive student debt for 40 million Americans, as he had tried to do. Uh, in response, the president made the political argument that Republican officials couldn't bear the thought of providing relief for working class, middle class Americans. How do you respond to that? Well, first, it's just factually wrong. The majority of people that would have benefited from this student loan forgiveness are people with multiple graduate degrees. So you're going to say to working Americans, to truck drivers, to people working in the trades, we're going to take your taxes and, and pay down a part of the student debt uh, of, of doctors and, and lawyers and, uh, and PhDs. It just, it, uh, uh, nothing could be further than the truth. This was not about the middle class. You still have to get young voters to turn out and vote for you, sir. Uh, this is very politically popular issue for Democrats. So what is your pledge to young voters? Well, my pledge to young voters is that we're going to get this economy moving again. They're worried. They're worried about this economy uh, and unconstitutional government handouts are not what these young Americans are looking for. They're looking for a growing economy. Uh, and they know that by putting into practice the policies that we did in our administration, by extending those Trump-Pence tax cuts, rolling back regulations, ending the war on energy, securing uh, our border, uh, we're going to set, set the table for a boundless American future for them. There was some uh, reporting in The Washington Post that President Trump, back in 2020, after the election, repeatedly asked you to call the governor of the state of Arizona, Doug Ducey, to get him to substantiate President Trump's claims, false claims of fraud. Uh, the Post is reporting you did call the Arizona governor multiple times to discuss the election. Uh, is that reporting accurate? And what did you tell Governor Ducey at the time? I did check in uh, with uh, not only Governor Ducey, but other governors in states that were going through the legal process of reviewing their election results. But uh, there was no pressure involved. Margaret, I was I was calling to get an update. I passed along that information uh, to the president and uh, it was no more, no less than that. You are clearly saying you did not pressure the governor, but were you being pressured by Mr. Trump uh, to get those uh, to influence Doug Ducey, and did you talk about this with the special counsel? Uh, no, I, I, I don't remember any pressure. Look, the president and I, uh, things came to a head at the end, uh, Margaret. I've spoken about very openly, and the president and I continue to have uh, a strong difference. Uh, I'll always believe that by God's grace, I, I did my duty under the Constitution uh, that day in presiding over a joint session of Congress uh, in, in the aftermath of the mayhem and the rioting. Uh, but in, in the days of November and December, this was, a, this was an orderly process. You'll remember there were more than 60 lawsuits underway. States were engaging in appropriate reviews, and that uh, these contacts were no more than that. You did just make this trip to Ukraine. You were the only Republican presidential candidate to have done so, and you met with President Zelensky. Um, he is being very clear that when NATO leaders meet this month, he expects clear steps and an invitation to join the Western military alliance. If you were president, would you make that pledge to a country that's currently at war with Russia?
I'm, I'm someone that believes that it's absolutely essential that the United States continue to provide military support to the Ukrainian uh, military to push back on Russian aggression. Because if Russia were able to overrun Ukraine, I think it would not, it would not be long before Vladimir Putin ordered his troops across the border that under NATO we would be required to send men and women in uniform. It is not in our interest to send American forces into Ukraine, and I would never support it. And as I met with President Zelensky, he made it clear that he's not looking for that. And I have reason to believe, Margaret, that uh, when, when NATO meets in a few weeks in Vilnius, uh, that, uh, that President Zelensky would be open to a conditional invitation to membership in, in NATO, namely saying that Ukraine will be a member of NATO once the war is over, once the war is won. I mean, I, I really do believe it's essential that, that America continue to lead, that our allies provide Ukraine with the support they need. On the Afghanistan issue, the State Department just released a report Friday, uh, an after-action report that did fault the Biden administration for a number of missteps, but it also faulted the Trump administration, uh, saying the Trump administration had insufficient senior-level consideration of worst-case scenarios when it agreed to the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2020. President Trump signaled his desire to end the military presence before even reaching a deal with the Taliban. There was no plan or effort to help at-risk Afghans or plan for what to do with diplomats after a withdrawal happened. Just a lack of planning. Do you accept that the Trump administration bears some responsibility for this chaos? Margaret, I don't, because I know what the deal was that was negotiated with the Taliban. I mean, it was made very clear. I was in the room uh, when President Trump told the leader of the Taliban, he said, look, you're going to have to cooperate with, with the Afghan government. Uh, you don't harbor terrorists, and you don't harm any American soldiers. We went 18 months without a single American casualty to the day at that Kabul airport that we lost 13 uh, brave American service members. That, like, that, the blame for what happened here falls squarely on the current commander-in-chief. And under our administration, I, I promise you that while, while it, was our, it was the intention of the president, the former president, to pull our troops out, when the Taliban broke the deal and moved into Mazar al-Sharif uh, and Joe Biden did nothing, uh, that set into motion the catastrophe that, that became Afghanistan. Are you saying there that you would have kept the troops beyond the 2020 deal? Is that what you're saying? Well, uh, look, I, I, candidly, it was always my belief that it would be prudent to keep a couple of thousand American forces there to support our efforts against terrorists elements both in Afghanistan and in the region. And I, I think we ultimately would have done that. Uh, just as the president announced we were, uh, the former president announced we were pulling troops out of Syria. You remember I was, I was sent to Turkey to negotiate mm -hmm. a ceasefire. And, and ultimately there's still American forces in Syria today. I, I think we would have landed in that place. I want to ask you about China as well. Um, do you agree with President Biden that Xi Jinping is a dictator? Um, I, I think it's a statement of fact, Margaret. <laughs> but look, I also want to say with regard to Ukraine, because a lot of people will say, well, China's the real issue. There's no more effective way to send a deafening message to communist China to check their military ambitions in the Asia Pacific than by giving Ukraine what they need to repel the Russian invasion. I know China's watching. Uh, they forged this uh, un unlimited partnership uh, with, uh, with Russia. But I, I got to know, I've met President Xi. I've also met President Putin. I guarantee you President Xi is watching what's happened in Ukraine very carefully. We give the Ukrainians much more quickly than Joe Biden's doing now. We give them what they need to win this fight, to repel mm -hmm. the Russian invasion. I think, I think it'll, it'll, uh, it'll lay a strong foundation for restraining uh, the military aggression and uh, ambitions of China in the Asia Pacific, like like almost nothing else. So to be clear, you as president would commit U.S. troops to defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion? I would say to you that uh, I'm, I'm somebody that believes that it's no advantage to say what you would or wouldn't do. I thought one of the catastrophic errors that President Biden made before the Russian invasion in Ukraine was uh, uh, he signaled that if it was just a uh, if it was just a small invasion, that maybe we wouldn't send 
troops or we wouldn't respond. Look, I, Margaret, we never say what you'll never do. The United States of America should continue to be providing with to Taiwan with the military means to defend themselves. What we want is a policy of deterrence. Thank you for your time today, Mr. Vice President. Thank you, Margaret. Our extended interview with the former vice president is available on our YouTube page. Gunfire interrupted a block party in southern Baltimore early this morning, where police say two people were killed and 28 hurt. No one was arrested immediately after the shooting. According to the Gun Violence Archive, it was the 338th mass shooting this year. We'll be right back with former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder and the president of the UC system, Dr. Michael Drake. Stay with us. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to go back to the Supreme Court. Joining us now is former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, who is now head of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which was involved in two election-related cases before that court. Uh, good morning to you. Um, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of things to talk about in regard to what you don't agree with the court on, but you did have two victories here, sir. Uh, the state of Alabama will now have to redraw its congressional map to include a second majority black district as a result of this 5-4 ruling that the state discriminated against black voters. Uh, what's the political and legal impact of this ruling? Well, first of all, I think it's uh, an affirmation by the court that there's still a need for a vibrant Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, what the Republican legislature did in Alabama was clearly inconsistent with precedent, inconsistent with the way in which the uh, Voting Rights Act had been interpreted. Uh, Alabama has about 27% of its um, inhabitants who are uh, African-American. And yet, if you look at the math, they only got about 7% or 14% of the uh, congressional seats. That decision will have an impact beyond the state of Alabama. If you look at Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, they also have um, instances where the lines have been drawn in such a way to dilute the voting power of African-Americans, and again, inconsistent with the Voting Rights Act. And so I think that you will also see courts rule, consistent with the Supreme Court's ruling, um, that uh, those lines will have to be redrawn in those states as well. In Moore versus Harper, the Supreme Court voted 6-3 to reject the theory that state legislatures can decide the rules for federal elections. I know Democrats had feared Republicans might use that to overturn results in 2024, like the former president attempted to in 2020. Does this ruling from the court, does the, the fact they took on the case at all, make you more confident about the integrity of the upcoming 2024 election? Yeah, it makes me a lot more confident that we're going to have a fair um, election come 2024 um, and that this ridiculous notion, this independent state legislature theory, uh, will hopefully just go away. Um, that was a, as fringe a theory as has ever been heard by the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the only disappointment I have in that decision is that it was not a nine to zero um, decision. The notion of the independent state um, legislature theory was that uh, courts, uh, that, that the legislatures um, had the final say without any involvement of, of court review 
Uh, and that's inconsistent with our notion of checks and balances. Uh, it will mean that we will have the ability to go before state courts to look at what legislatures and sometimes gerrymandered legislatures are doing uh, with regard to redistricting. And just as in any other case, um, have courts have the, the final say. Um, that's the way our, our system is designed, and that is what the court affirmed uh, through that uh, through the North Carolina case. The Supreme Court did warn state courts, federal courts could still overrule on cases involving federal elections. Does that concern you? No, not at all. I okay. mean, uh, I think you want to have that backstop so that if a state court does something that is, you know, egregiously wrong, uh, you want to have the United States Supreme Court have the ability to come in and um, and correct that wrong. I want to ask you about affirmative action. Um, in this decision that race cannot be used in college admissions, there was also written by Chief Justice, uh, the Chief Justice's opinion, some detail here that seems a little confusing, frankly, because it says nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. In other words, the student must be treated on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. So you can discuss race in a college application, but it can't be, how do you understand this? Uh, I don't really understand it. It <laughs> seems to me that that exception or that caveat is a little inconsistent with the um, the rest of the opinion. And the other footnote that says, well, this doesn't apply to the military academies, which are in essence nothing more than, than colleges. I mean, you know, colleges with a specialized mission. Uh, again, it seems to be inconsistent with the uh, the holding. You know, th the thing is that, you know, this nation continues to grapple with issues of race. Um, and to say that race is not uh, a, a negative factor for too many people in this nation is inconsistent with just what the facts are. Um, the, the notion of affirmative action is to take into account just one of many things of when you look at qualified people, qualified students who are applying to colleges, look at that one one of many things and say, well, you know, for diverse, for the sake of diversity, uh, we're going to take into consideration the fact that we want to have this black kid um, be a part of our university. But there's not a tension between the use of affirmative action and excellence. I think people mm -hmm. need to understand that. You don't, affirmative action doesn't mean you get into a school simply because you're black. It means that you're qualified and that one of the factors that's taken into consideration of a qualified student uh, is that person's race. But one of the complications here in terms of the cases brought was the argument being made that affirmative action at Harvard an elite institution in particular, um, was hurting Asian Americans. Um, Jay Caspian King, a writer for The New Yorker, writes affirmative action. It was righteous in concept, but hard to defend in practice. And I want to quote, if a society should make decisions with a clear eye towards history, a sentiment I agree with, shouldn't it also follow that a group who is expelled from the U.S. would at least have the right to not be lumped in with the people who kicked them out. He's referring there to historic mistreatment by white people of Asian Americans, Chinese Exclusion Act, Japanese internment. How do you respond to that argument? Well, you know, first off, you're looking at the um, Asian American community as a monolith, um, and there are a whole variety of uh, groups that make up the Asian American um, population in the nation. And, you know, what the proponents of this lawsuit did was to try to use uh, pit one minority group uh, against another so that they could ultimately reach their goal. They've been trying to attack affirmative action since the Baki decision back in um, in 1978. Um, you know, this notion that somehow, some way, I guess if you think that everybody who has 1600 on their board scores, everybody who has a 4.0 ought to be admitted um, to a, a particular school. The reality is, if you just use that as a determinant, there are going to be way too many kids trying to get into these elite schools, and you're still going to have to make determinations based on other factors. And it seems to me that making race one of those factors, just one of those factors, again, with regard to qualified students, uh, is wholly consistent with our Constitution. I want, before I let you go, I want to ask you uh, to put on your attorney general hat again. Would you counsel President Biden or the next president, whoever that is, to consider a pardon of the 45th president of the United States, either before or after a theoretical conviction? 
I, I think I'd look, what, tell the president, the next attorney general, uh, you know, to let the let the system uh, do its work, uh, try the cases, see what the results are, um, and then treat that convicted president or any of anybody else who is convicted uh, as any other person um, would be treated. Pardons generally are, are for people who express remorse and then who have done things uh, that shows that they have turned their lives around. If those kinds of determinations can be made with regard to the former president or anybody else who was convicted, yeah, I would support that. In the absence of something like that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think that would be a wise thing to do. Uh, Mr. Eric Holder, former attorney general, thank you for your time. Prior to last week's Supreme Court ruling, there were nine states with bans on affirmative action in college admissions. California was the first to ban it, following a ballot initiative in 1996. Joining us now is the president of the University of California system, Dr. Michael Drake. Welcome back to the program. Uh, We want to tap into your experience here. Uh, The school system has spent $500 million since 2004 to try to drive diversity. Is it possible to have a diverse student body without affirmative action? And how do you define diverse at this point? Well, thank you very much. You know, we've had efforts uh, since uh, the 90s and before to try to do everything we could to, through outreach and other methods, uh, contact those students who we wanted to see applying to our universities. We use a comprehensive admissions process to look at all the factors that led to this person's life and their interest in being educated with us. And we think that can be done very effectively. Affirmative action was one tool that we and others used in the past. We've read the court's decision and we had the laws in California that changed in the 1990s. And we are very pleased that our ability to be able to attract students from a wide variety of backgrounds over these over these many years. Does this court ruling affect you at all? Well, we'll have to see how it plays out in fact. You know, when we had the law change in California in the 1990s, it affected us quite profoundly in, in a couple of ways. In one way, it limited the way that we were admitting students. But another way, it told students that California and that the University of California were not interested in them. This was something that came from action from our regents before it passed in law. So students that we would lo- love to have admitted, students who are fully qualified, felt unwelcome and we found went to other schools, to private schools, in California and others across the country. This is the entire nation, so it's not, students aren't hearing that we're not interested or the colleges aren't interested in them. And I think that, mm-hmm. so it will have less of an effect on us, we think, be, uh, because it affects the whole, the whole country. Well, you've used other metrics or, or tools to, to recruit. Um, there's a, a piece I just read about the socioeconomic disadvantage scale, the SED, that the University College or University uh, that UC Davis and the medical school uses. What's an adversity score and, and how does that work? What they're doing, what Davis is doing, we applaud this and our other universities, other campuses in our university do in a variety of ways is look at the life circumstances of those who are applying to come to us and weigh those in a comprehensive fashion when they look at the quality of the application and make a decision. And actually, we do this for every student. We look at who you are, what you've done, what makes you a qualified applicant as we're recruiting and admitting you to our colleges and universities. So how do you define diversity. We, we looked at the undergraduate makeup um, before affirmative action and then this past fall. Um, and the percentages, which we can put up on, on screen for, for different groups there, um, have shifted. The state's demographics have also shifted. The one thing that stands out is the percentage of African-American students held fairly stable at this four or four and a half percent level. Why was that unmoved, really? Yeah, I think that the uh, issues of uh, racism and lack of opportunity that we find in our society are persistent and and ubiquitous, and we've been fighting against those. We've been working to create opportunity, fighting against those for all of these years. Affirmative action was one tool that we used in the past. That was removed. We still are fighting the legacy of the centuries of oppression and denial that this country uh, has uh, applied. uh, doing our best to try to create more opportunity for students who come from this unequal society. But how do you, because, because you're being asked essentially to quantify in some way um, a, a diverse student body, do, do you try to match the demographics of this state? I mean, how do you know if you're succeeding or if you're failing? Yeah, we don't do anything prospectively. You know, what we do is try to create opportunity 
in a comprehensive way to really evaluate the quality of every application. We can look retrospectively and see how the students that we are admitted look like the students that are graduating from California high schools. And we certainly notice if there's a great disparity there. And we work on closing those gaps by doing more outreach to high schools that haven't been sending us students, more support programs uh, to students that make sure that they will apply to us in numbers financial aid programs that help students from low-income backgrounds, a, a variety of things that are meant to open up the access uh, to the university that we feel is good for us and good for society. I'm interested in, in which part of that you think works the best. Um, and also, you know, the last time you were with us back in 2020, the school system was ending standardized testing in admissions. You've now yes. had that in place for a while. Does that work? Should other schools look at it? Yeah, what we found, I'll say two things about that. One, we eliminated the SAT in 2020. Uh, we did that just before the pandemic, but it happened to be implemented during the pandemic. So it's a little difficult to know how much that's affected things versus the, the pandemic. What we did see was an increase in applications from students who uh, came from diverse backgrounds who were reluctant to apply in the past even though we may have admitted them. So we're pleased to see an increase in applications from those, from those people. And, it's, um, and our classes are extraordinarily strong. Today our students are doing quite well. So this has been quite a positive thing for us. So you're keeping it in place, it sounds like. Yes. All right. Um, Dr. Drake, thank you for sharing your an insights and your experience. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With the convergence of artificial intelligence and politics, it is increasingly difficult for voters to differentiate between real and fake. We asked Lindsey Gorman, a technology expert with the German Marshall Fund, to help us discern between fact and fiction in political images. Let's play a first video of Hillary Clinton, apparently on MSNBC. You know, people might be surprised to hear me say this, but I actually like Ron DeSantis a lot. Yeah, I know. I'd say he's just the kind of guy this country needs, and I really mean that. If Ron DeSantis got installed as president, I'd be fine with that. So this is a classic deep fake video where someone has said some of these things and juxtaposed it with Hillary Clinton's likeness and her face and her hair to make it seem like she's now endorsing Ron DeSantis for president in 2024. Does it look realistic to you? What, what do you think? That does sound like Hillary Clinton's actual voice, but I noticed that the synchronization was not there between the audio and her mouth. There wasn't disconnect. Absolutely. Looking at the mouth is a really good starting place to see if it is indeed matching what the audio is matching. The same thing also when we played it, her head sort of shook in a somewhat mechanical way. It felt maybe a little bit off. Same thing with her eyes and here they're a little blurred out. Um, and so that's, I think, one way of spotting how we can tell that this is a manipulated image. Yeah, so here's President Biden. All right, this one I'm going to ask you about. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. Donald Trump lacked the courage to act. The brave women and men in blue all across this nation should never forget that. So what did you think of this one? He didn't blink. Not at all, right? So that suggests it's fake. This one's actually real. How's that? <laughs> this was actually a speech he gave to the National Association of Black Law Enforcement Officers. And 
it looks really like a deep fake. It has sort of a washed out look. He didn't move very much, just like with the other ones. And yes, he didn't blink for the whole 17 second clip. And when this actually surfaced about a year ago, there were conspiracy theories and people thinking that this had to have been a deep fake, even though it came from the DNC's own social media account and was later published by the White House itself. The reason that we can tell that this one is not a deep fake, we really need to rely on context and the source. First of all, coming out a full White House video, giving a speech, and these were remarks that were delivered virtually. We're not only at risk of seeing things that are false and thinking that they're true, mm -hmm. but actually seeing things that are, that are true and thinking that they're false. And that's kind of this liar's dividend that in an information environment that where we can't tell what's real and what's not. A liar's dividend? A liar's dividend that the liar can kind of take the advantage because a liar can just say, well, this, this, maybe this audio that you caught of me, this image that you took of me, that's actually not true. It's, a, it's just a fake. And it's hard to prove whether something is actually real, uh, not just whether something is, is fake. And, and this is really advantageous sort of to autocrats and to those who would sow doubt and discord in our information space. So this one, I don't know if you saw this one when it came out. Does it look familiar to you at all? This. This is the image that actually caused a market sell-off, right? It is. It's a fake picture of the Pentagon with what looks like plumes of smoke. Exactly. So how can we tell that this is fake? <laughs> well, for someone who hasn't been to the Pentagon, I, I think it would be hard. There is just something that looks slightly off about this building that I can't quite articulate. These AI-generated images have a sort of hyper-realistic hyper sheen to them. And this one has it a little bit, you can see with the plume. But really, I think this one needs a closer look. The building, as you pointed out, doesn't really actually look like the Pentagon. And even if you hadn't been to the Pentagon, you could see by doing a Google image search and doing it. street view and comparing, is there really an angle of the Pentagon that looks like this? There isn't. Take a look. So these are obviously these photos of, of fake photos of, of Trump being arrested. For someone at home who may not be following things very closely, they might think this was reality. Absolutely, especially from a first look. How can we tell that these are fake? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you think? Besides are they, yeah. that not actually happening. Exactly, and right. context is a really important piece of this. Mm -hmm. in, in this photo, Trump has at least three legs. So extra limbs here, I, probably that one. There are a few, a few extra limbs as well. But these absolutely capture the imagination and make people think, oh, was Trump actually arrested? All right, here's one for you. What's real, what's fake? How can we tell? <sighs> okay, so that's his actual lawyer recently um, in New York. So I do recognize him in the context yeah, that one's real from the arraignment. What is this? Is this fake? This is a fake. I think the okay. the maybe the biggest giveaway is the crying. Right. The actual. Oh, is that what he's, he's supposed it? to be yeah, crying? Yeah, he's, he's crying at I his see. hearing. Um, in sort of the technical signatures, this is this does have the sheen. Some of the the gentlemen in the back, their faces are blurred. This one, I want to say it's fake. That one's real. That one is real? <laughs> yep. You're kidding. It's just the differences in lighting. Yep, that, that's a real photo there. And this, what you're going through right now, once you look at enough of these, the default position really does become just be skeptical of everything, which that's makes hard. sense because it, if it gets us to check and if it gets us to find a source and investigate mm -hmm. and use these, these media literacy techniques, but on the other hand, it has some dangerous implications for our democracy and our society. We need to be able to trust in what we see and what we hear. It's not realistic for us to check and do a reverse Google image search on every piece of content we come across. It makes having news standards that much more important. And these mostly circulate online. Absolutely, and the role here of the media is, is so crucial in clearly labeling when something is manipulated, when something's fake and when something's real, um, as well as a role, I think, of, of technologies that can give us these digital watermarks mm -hmm. and, and show what's real. And we'll be right back. 
The CDC reports that black women are more than three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related complication. Tonight, BET's monthly news magazine, Black in America, explores the troubling rise in maternal mortality and features an interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. That's at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on BET and streaming on Paramount+. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Have a happy Independence Day. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, former Vice President Mike Pence, former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, the President of the University of California Michael Drake, and the German Marshall Fund's Lindsey Gorman. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.